Welcome to Foothills Youth Podcast, where we help people follow Jesus. I hope these resources are a blessing to you. We are a student ministry based out of Northwest Calgary, and our hope, our desire, is that we see students become resilient disciples in a post-Christian nation. So may this podcast just be a blessing to you in your journey. Okay, well, sweet. Well, hey, guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm sitting down with Dr. Rob Snow from Ambrose University, and he's been generous enough to come and, and sit down and share some of his wisdom, his time. So, Rob, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I uh, teach at Ambrose University. been here for, uh, well, almost 14 years now, and uh, teach uh, New Testament Biblical Studies uh, courses. Um, a variety of different subjects within that discipline from New Testament Greek to studies of the Gospels, Paul's letters to individual book studies such as Revelation, Romans, the Gospel of Mark for example. Mm, cool. So one like maybe calling question for us because I know there's yeah. a lot of students who are like how do I know what I'm supposed yeah. to do? There's people yeah. who seem to want to go into yeah. ministry. Yeah. That sort of thing. What what yeah. was your calling like? Yeah. How did you end up where you are? Yeah, it uh, all started actually over a um, boiling pot of craft dinner. Nice, uh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. <laughs> which I consumed copious amounts ever since that call. But um, when yeah, I was probably eight years old. I I was watching these noodles boil and just heard uh, I want you in ministry mm. and was it an audible voice I don't remember but certainly a, 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 a loud still small voice let's put it that way and that I think was a real formative time for me but then as I went on uh, through high school I come from a family that are all in non-ministry positions professional positions doctors business mm. people and and um, and I another part of me is I enjoy like building, working with my hands, oh, cool. construction and things like that. And so actually, I wasn't sure, so I went to, to Dalhousie and studied civil engineering for a year. Uh, but I remember on the steps of uh, the physics building, the Lord just as a January day, and He says, "I want you in ministry again." And so I'm like, "Okay, it's time to do this." And so I came to. What is now Ambrose University in uh, yeah the fall of uh, 1995 and and uh, and that evolved. I found that I really fell in love with learning, learning about the Bible and its backgrounds and just the life that it brings when we study it in its context. And and uh, the Lord has made a way so that I could continue my studies. And here I am uh, getting paid to study the Bible. It's pretty sweet gig that is sweet and yeah. the craft dinner game like it's strong hey yeah. do you have like do you go with the original box or do you have like those different like no. shaped no it's original all, all the way, way. Yeah. yeah the other noodles just don't hold up to boiling water in the way that the classic noodles yeah. do the spirals i think they're off the market now i don't know i could they were really good like the time the few times but you couldn't boil them as long as you could boil like the, well, the yeah, original ones right turns into mud <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah my my wife is like she's all about the craft dinner but God speaks through craft dinner which is sweet <laughs> um, so today we're talking about revelation eschatology and end times it's a big topic yeah so we're gonna try and do as best we can a flyby um, yeah. pick your brain a little bit on it yeah first first question what even is eschatology so in uh, theology and the things the study of God and things related to him we have a lot of kind of subtopics that fall under that and they all tend to end with ology uh, so like there's hermitology, eschatology, ecclesiology, blah blah blah. Um, eschatology is basically the study of the end. Um, a lot of people want to say it's a study of the end times but as we get into our conversation we'll see that that's a loaded phrase end times. It's mm. just the study of the end. It comes from the Greek word eschaton which means end. And so with the book of Revelation and the New Testament, all of the New Testament authors and Jesus himself uh, have a particular view of the end. And that is that God's saving purposes have not yet been fully realized in their fullness. And Jesus will return at the end to, to, to 
basically recreate the heavens and the earth to restore the people of God into completely into his likeness and and that's kind of the focus of the end of eschatology is the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns but something happened that Jews weren't expecting in their in their eschatology is that stuff reserved for the future like the giving of the Holy Spirit uh, happened during first century AD when Jesus rose from the dead and and with his resurrection it's like wow eternal life is kind of starting now in the present through this body of Jesus that was resurrected and, and we can experience eternal life now through the Holy Spirit but we still live in bodies that will die if Jesus doesn't return in the meantime hmm. but we can experience some of that life in the end of the end of of life, joy, peace, and all the things associated with God's presence, we can experience those things now in the mm -hmm. present through His Spirit. And that's part of eschatology, that, that when Jesus rose from the dead, you know, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was given, that triggered the end in the first century, and that end is still unfolding and, and will mm -hmm. be wrapped up when Christ returns. That's eschatology. Mm -hmm. Wow, so it's like our current reality is sort of God in His gifting and His grace has given us a taste of what will be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's all the, it's yeah, it's what will be, and and to emphasize that we can experience what will be now in the present, which is mm. so cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So, then we get to the end of the Bible, right? And we hit this book, yeah, called Revelation. Yeah. And I know so many people have so many questions because there's a lot of imagery. There's yeah. a lot of things that. Yeah. We don't know if, when, how, yeah. uh, how they're yeah. coming. A lot of people have guessed yeah. and have been wrong. But where do we, you and I, yeah. um, the people listening, where do we start mm -hmm. when we come to the book of Revelation? Yeah. Well, I think part of the key to that is is realizing what that name Revelation means. And first off, I don't know where this comes from, but most... Contemporary Christians call the book the book of Revelations or Revelations. It's singular in Greek. It's just Revelation, and that Greek word is apocalypsis, which which means revelation. But this word apocalypsis, transliterated in English or just in English, means apocalyptic. And um, the New Testament authors had an eschatological view, and they also had an apocalyptic view. And the difference between eschatology and apocalyptic, eschatology is the what. What is God doing and um, what will happen when the end comes? Apocalyptic is how the end will come. Mm. And how will basically Jesus be revealed? That's the meaning of apocalyptic. And so the book of Revelation, you know, shows how Jesus is revealed now in the present as one who has oversight over the churches and then finally will be revealed in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 2021. And so it's all about the how of the presence of God being revealed. And that's maybe a starting point for us. Yeah, so a first question when it comes to the how. Is it okay if we don't understand everything about the how? Yes, it is. It's <laughs> totally okay. Um, I think where the confusion rests, <laughs> and this is maybe what's prompting your question, is that there's so many views on the how. How will Christ return? What are the signs of the end? Um, should we have the newspaper in one hand and the book of Revelation in the other, trying to determine, for example, who the Antichrist is? I put percent, uh, quotation marks around Antichrist for a reason. Um, and, and, and that's where the debate is is hmm. how this thing is going to unfold. Yeah. So if I was sitting in a class on Revelation and you're teaching it, yeah. what were what would be the the views that you teach to interpret the book? Yeah, right. Um, it may be helpful just to consider just very briefly what views are are out there on okay. offer. And um, one of the ones that you may find in an academic context the most is called a preterist view. And a preterist basically looks at the book of Revelation really the way that we look at other books of the Bible, looking at, the, and at them in their historical context. So, so with a preterist view, they're trying to link the, the symbolism, for instance, you know, the beast from the sea in Revelation 13, 
Who does that refer to? Well, for a preterist, it refers to the Roman emperor of the time, maybe Domitian, mm -hmm. if you date Revelation to 95 AD, which, which most people do. Mm -hmm. so, so it's looking for correspondences. The challenge with preterism, and where I would maybe part company with it, <coughs> is that even the visions that John has of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21 and, and, and so forth, uh, they would see that as already being fulfilled in uh, the basically the past, maybe when the Holy Spirit was given. Now we have, you know, this unmediated access to the presence of God, and I'm just not sure that that when John says, you know, there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, that we're kind of there yet. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of suffering in this world, even amongst God's people, yeah. that I think the the view falls apart at that point. Mm. Um, the other kind of on the opposite side is, a, is a, what we would call a dispensational view. Um, and a classical dispensational view is looking at the, at the book in, in a very futuristic way. Some call this a futuristic reading of Revelation where you're looking for anything basically from Revelation chapter 4 onward. Everything lies in the future. Mm. The problem with that is the speculation that has gone on really, you know, from time immemorial about who is whom and what figure refers to whom, uh, it's, it always changes depending on which group is doing the speculating. So the Protestant reformers thought the papacy was the antichrist or, you know, the beast from the sea and um, I don't think that was quite accurate. So. So you can actually look and see where specific figures have been identified as the Antichrist in church history and they die and life goes on, right? Mm -hmm. um, the end didn't come with them. Yeah. So, hmm. so and I know there's like, at least in my own research, I found two other views, the historist, right? Yep. And the idealist? Yeah. What are those two? So uh, the idealist is basically looking at um, all of the imagery in the book of Revelation and and trying to see what's the symbolic value. Mm. So there's not any concern about what it originally meant to the audience, maybe just in a sort of nodding way, but but nothing nothing that is guiding the interpretation. It's it's looking at, for instance, um, you know, so we have these four horses in, in uh, Revelation 6 associated with the first uh, four seals, and, and each of those horses represents some aspect of war. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idealist is not looking at what, what was John communicating to the seven churches with those four horses. It's more what, what are the destructive effects of war in our culture today? Why would nations go to war? Do, does war cause more damage in the end? Uh, basically than the good uh, that it's you know sort of meant to uh, to bring about and sorry what was the other one you uh, were asking the historist? About? right yeah so the historist um, I think is there's a little bit of overlap between that and the futurist you're looking for basically one-to-one -one correspondence between the events the figures of revelation with events the figures in one's own day I suppose the historist is is, is looking maybe at fulfillment in their own time Versus maybe the futurist, it could extend past you know our current time. Right. So, how do you, how would you um, what would how would you say we should be looking at the book yeah. of Revelation? Yeah. So, I mean, part of uh, as an educator, uh, one of the things that I believe strongly in is allowing students of the Bible to make it their own, not make it their own in terms of just their own subjective viewpoints they're looking for validation for those in the scripture but mm -hmm. them really understanding the scripture for themselves mm -hmm. and and I think it's important that that students of the Bible look into these different perspectives to see the legitimacy of them because there is aspects of truth in, in all of them but I'm not sure that one particular viewpoint carries all of it all of the freight that those proponents of that view would think it should carry and so, so for me, definitely the preterist view, which takes serious the historical literary context, which is also part of a futurist dispensational view. They're very much into the historical context. Now, what's interesting about that and the challenge of, well, what's my view of Revelation is that uh, a futurist looking you know, for future fulfillment and the preterist, how is it fulfilled in uh, 
uh, basically the time of John, have basically the same kind of starting point method and how they study it, and that is to read it in its own context. What does mm -hmm. the symbolism mean in its own context? Right. And both of them argue that that method is the most legit one, but yet they arrive at vastly different conclusions. Mm. So that's what makes this whole reading revelation so difficult. And, and so for me, I think it's um, looking for the legitimacy and the various viewpoints and and reading Revelation in such a way that it's commensurate or in keeping with how I read other books of the Bible. Hmm. And so, you know, Paul does talk about the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians, that the dead in Christ will, you know, will rise first, we were alive, we'll meet him in the air. So, so that, that's future. And, but Paul's also talking about stuff that relates to his own day as well. Hmm. That is specifically for them. Um, so, so the same with Revelation. What, what is it that is related to John's day? What is it that it relates to the life of the future? And, and for me personally, because I think actually when you look at Revelation, there's a lot that's bending towards uh, having a Roman significance. And so they're basically from Revelation 1 through to uh, 19 or so, I would say, you know, the preterist view. Um, but then when Paul talks about, sorry, when John has a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, clearly that's, that has not yet arrived. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. So for somebody who was reading John's revelation in 95 AD, what would, what would some of this imagery mean to them? Hmm. So let's uh, pick an example. So the church, in, and here's a, an often um, misunderstood passage. So, the church of Laodicea, John writes and says, you are neither hot nor cold, mm. and because you are neither hot nor cold, I'm going to, well, literally in Greek, vomit you out of my mouth. Spitting is, is uh, more of a euphemism, I suppose, <laughs> making it less intense than what it really is. Yeah. As we know, vomiting is a very gut-wrenching experience. <laughs> so, that's the nature of hot and cold. So, most people, because we're unaware of the context of Laodicea as an ancient site in, uh, as an ancient city, um, look at that and think, okay, hmm, I can understand how uh, Jesus wants us to be hot in terms of our devotion towards him, but why would he say to be cold? Maybe, well, don't muck around and be in the middle. Either you're in or, or you're out. Mm -hmm. Well, lo and behold, if you go to uh, Laodicea, I've been there a couple of times with students, you see that their water supply, they didn't have their own water supply. Cold water from Colossae, which is just uh, to the south, was piped in. You can still see where that aqueduct is. And then to the north in Heropolis, there's hot springs there. Hmm. You stayed at, uh, at a hotel where you could go literally sit in those hot springs and bake. It's got nothing on the Banff hot springs, I'll tell you right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, the water's burning your feet as it's welling up from oh. the ground. So that hot water's <laughs> piped in. And, and what is it? Well, cold water is useful for stuff, right? It's good for drinking and maybe medicinal purposes. Hot water, the same thing. It serves a purpose, cooking and having tea. Yeah. And, 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 and the passage that comes alive when you know that background is this one. It's, a, I know your deeds, which is how Paul, sorry, John begins, I know your deeds, you're neither hot nor cold. That has nothing to do with what we think from a, from a context or from a perspective where we haven't looked at the background. Nothing to do with, with internal devotion, but rather effectiveness for Christ. How are we living mm -hmm. um, in, in ways that are honoring to Christ? And, and lo and behold, we go on in that letter to Laodicea, there's a strong emphasis on on having fine clothes and, and John is like, no, I want you to buy real gold from me and, and clothing that is white and pure. And, and there's ref so there's references to clothes and, and lo and behold, the area of Laodicea is known for its textile industry. Hmm. And so likely these people are completely consumed by commerce, by consumerism by what they've acquired for themselves, and it is a barrier to a f being a, a faithful, effective, lived out um, testimony of, of faithfulness to Jesus. Maybe they're ignoring the poor because mm. they're so focused on their wealth. So really direct application when we consider the historical context. Mm. That, sounds, that, that sounds familiar. Mm. That sounds a lot like where we are in our yeah. Western culture today and, and the, yeah. the barriers that there are that we are sometimes self-inflicted, our idols maybe we would use like biblical language to 
intimacy and and devotion to Jesus. Yeah. Um, so for somebody who who doesn't know background when it comes to the hot and cold idea with Laodicea, yeah. Yeah. where would you point someone that yeah. isn't coming to Ambrose, is maybe in high school, or just wants to learn a little bit more of background? What resources could you point somebody in? Yeah, yeah. Um, one hel- helpful book yeah. uh, is uh, one by a former colleague of mine who also, uh, yes. I think, used to go to your church, yeah. uh, Dr. Paul Spilsbury. So he's written a book called The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon. Mm. Now, the nice thing about this book is it's short. It's only 150 <laughs> pages. And although there's no pictures, the print is really big. Yeah. So um, that's my kind of book. And no, I shouldn't say that. But anyway, <laughs> um, it is kind of. So when, when you look at it, he basically looks at three symbols, the throne, the throne mm. of God, the Lamb who is slain, and the dragon who is the ultimate adversary of God's people, Satan. And, and for Spilsbury, those three symbols unlock the rest of the meaning of the book of Revelation. So I would advise against picking up some technical commentary. Commentaries are basically where scholars analyze each individual verse because you can get lost in the details. Mm. But a book that does a thematic treatment of Revelation in its own context, yes, it only scratches the surface, but it scratches the surface in just the right ways so that then it unlocks the meaning of other passages elsewhere that you know a short book like this just couldn't cover. Mm. And so I've actually used this one in a small group setting in my local church. Oh, and wow. and um, I have to be honest with you, those who subscribe to a dispensational framework weren't too excited about this, <laughs> but uh, they came and, and we had dialogue too, and that's yeah. important too, not to fight with each other over this stuff, yeah. um, because that's kind of counterproductive to uh, to the gospel as well, because mm. we can learn from each other, although we may not always agree with each other. Yeah, yeah. That's so. That kind of leads into maybe another question: is why are there so many different viewpoints on Revelation? Mm-hmm. Like we talk about something like uh, premillennialism or, or postmillennialism, which it references yeah. to, like the millennial that's re- referenced to in, in Revelation. So how, why are there so many? What's, yeah. what's your insight yeah. on that? So it's, it basically begins with your starting point. Mm. And uh, where you start in terms of how you study a text is going to dictate where you end up. And although the preterist and the dispensational viewpoint, they share the same uh, kind of outlook uh, in terms of reading it from a historical critical way, um, there is a, a slight nuance in difference. The dispensationalist takes everything literally. So, so the symbolism, there's, there's got to be like a literal kind of significance or correspondence to it in some way. Mm. Versus the preterist is more like the idealist and, and is, is okay with the symbolism and seeing meaning in the symbolism. Mm. And that's the thing with apocalyptic literature. Like apocalyptic is about um, symbols and it's been around for hundreds of years before the book of Revelation where... God is communicating his character and his saving purposes in ways that aren't obvious or are not readily accessible because when you have a symbol, there's usually a deeper meaning to it in some way. But a literalist, they look at symbolism and just get caught up or look for meaning in the symbol itself versus what the meaning is that the symbol points to. And so that's one reason why we have a just a divergence of or a multitude of perspectives. Mm. Um, and so this idea of the millennial reign of Christ, so um, it's mentioned in Revelation 19, I believe, um, where Christ will reign, the saints will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So most preterists are what we would call post-millennialists, mm-hmm. meaning that the reign of Christ began with the giving of the Holy Spirit, began with the church and will continue until the return of Christ. And when you actually read the characteristics of the millennial reign of Christ, it's it's about victory uh, in the moment. It's about reigning with Christ, which I think is very much in keeping with the rest of the New Testament. It's highlighting the positive aspects of what Christ has done for us versus um, a dispensationalist is a, is a premillennialist who would say, no, evil needs to be judged and dealt with in this world. There needs to be a tribulation hmm. that will come which is picked up from other uh, texts, for instance, you know, when the, the beast from the sea arises, things, things like that, that uh, there's a period of suffering and then, 
and then the millennial reign will Christ. So it's pre-millennial in the sense that it's it's before the rapture. Possibly I should talk about the rapture a little bit. Yeah, that would, I know everybody's got questions. So, so here's the deal. Um, you know, people asked, who's the Antichrist? Yeah. When is the rapture going to occur? Are we in the end times? What are the signs that we should look for? Now, the thing when you look at all of that terminology, it's pulled from different parts of the New Testament. Mm. The word rapture, for instance, doesn't even really occur anywhere in the New Testament. It basically has a Latin root that when Jerome, this guy who translated the Greek from uh, into Latin in the fourth centuries, he came across the Greek verb will be caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and chose basically the English word that we have but has a Latin counterpart translated as rapture. And that, this idea of being kind of enraptured or sucked up or moved up <laughs> to be present with Christ. Left behind, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. Everyone who doesn't get raptured, which reminds me of a story. So this is why we got our terminology right. So that's, this is the rapture piece. It's just okay. from 1 Thessalonians. Okay. I remember coming home, uh, not coming home, being home as a young child. And, and I grew up in a dispensational context where... Um, you don't know when Christ is going to return. The rapture will happen, and it's kind of like Jesus' parable. One, two workers working in the field, one taken and the other left. Who will be taken? Who will be left behind? And Mom, I was home alone at night, and about 8 o'clock, and Mom hadn't come home yet, and I thought, dang it, the rapture's <laughs> happened, and Mom is gone, oh. and I've been left behind. But then I thought, okay, i got to make sure this is the case. I'm going to call my Aunt Helen, who I know is a sanctified lady, and if anyone's going, she'll go. So uh, sure enough, I called my Aunt Helen, she's like, hello, I'm like, hello, and she's like, oh, how can I help you, Robert? And I was like, um, just call and say hi, and just kind of <laughs> awkwardly ended the phone conversation. So anyway, I knew that the rapture hadn't happened yet, but it was actually a tactic um, in the 50s and the 60s, there's crazy songs, I wish we'd all been ready, about kind of the rapture happening. And, and the deal is you want to get raptured because what's going to happen is a great tribulation. So the rapture happens to escape from suffering. Here's the problem. When you actually look at it in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking to a group of people who are not getting raptured to escape suffering. They already are suffering for mm. the gospel of Jesus Christ. And <coughs> Paul is saying... The suffering won't last forever. At some point, Christ will return. But he's not even actually talking about in, in that context of suffering. It's dead relatives. What happened to them? People want to know. Are they just gone because Greeks didn't have a view of the afterlife? Paul's like, nope, they'll come back from the dead, and we are alive. We'll meet them and, get, and meet them in the air. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I might just add a little bit more on to this, so, because the rapture idea is an escape from this world, escape from suffering and tribulation, that's completely foreign to Paul's thought. And in fact, the Greek word, we will meet him in the air, actually describes um, meeting Jesus in the way that uh, administrative officials, political figures would go out and meet a king who's coming to visit his realm and territory. Now, you don't go out and ceremonially greet someone and be like, hey, Let's turn around and walk away from the kingdom you're about to come and be welcomed into. No, you go and enter the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. It's Jesus, us meeting him to return to this heaven, this earth that has been completely restored and renewed. And, and you can't read that stuff literally. So mm -hmm. dispensationalists would read it literally, but there's so much imagery from the Old Testament, so much imagery from... You know, the sound of a trumpet taken from the Roman times, heralding the arrival of a king. Um, it's, it's symbolism that's communicating a theological truth. When mm. Jesus returns, it will trigger a new heavens and a new earth. We'll live with him for eternity in this world, but made new. Mm. So that's the rapture. Antichrist, what's up with Antichrist? Yeah. Well, it's not mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's not mentioned in the Gospels. It's only mentioned in John's letters. And they're, they're plural antichrists or an antichrist, and it's associated around uh, basically Christological heresies. Some who deny uh, the physicality of Jesus are antichrists. So it's kind of a way of a philosophical uh, approach, a way of thinking about 
theology about the deity of Christ uh, in kind of inaccurate ways. But there's no sense that uh, an antichrist is a political figure. Mm. But what happens is there's a blending of biblical texts, and, and, and this relates to, you know, why are there so many views? They're, they're hermeneutical, and by that fancy word I mean the way we interpret the Bible. There's not consistency in our interpretive approaches. So we pick passages that talk about the rapture. We pick passages uh, that uh, talk about uh, the Antichrist. Um, we, we pick uh, other passages, sort of just end times passages, you know, great woes and tribulations, and, mm. and basically build a system out of this to determine um, the stuff that apocalyptic communicates. How is Christ going to return? And, and you can't do that. We have to let each text speak on its own terms and the passages within those texts be interpreted within their own context. Once we determine that for each biblical book, then we can think about, okay, what's the pattern that's developing here? And so with the, going back to the Antichrist piece, that's really uh, been merged together with the man of lawlessness that's revealed in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, who is being restrained for the time being, but when the restrainer leaves, the man of lawlessness, son of perdition, all of this will be revealed, and he's going to unleash hell on earth um, and set himself in the temple of God. But again, that's probably something that's happening within Paul's day and not something necessarily for the future, but uh, mm. I admit there's many who wouldn't see it that way. But my hermeneutical approach is different than theirs. Right, right. That's really interesting. Because, like, a lot of people want to know, okay, what's that true? I remember when 9-11 happened. Right. Like, everybody, at least in at some evangelical circles, were talking about, this is a sign. Like, the, uh, like the tsunami that happened in... Um, I, Forgive me, I forget the place. But like all of these, yeah, when cool. when there was a, like a cluster of these natural disasters yeah. began to happen, and yes. and this destruction was happening, and and the world was kind of going crazy, yeah. people were saying, "Oh, like these are signs of the end times." Yeah. What would you say to those people? So, um, so when you look at it, in in my revelation class, uh, you know. There were certain interpretations of the atom bomb when it was dropped on Hiroshima and, and uh, the other city in Japan, um, saying that you know this is a part of the fulfillment of different aspects of, of Revelation. I think in relation to the trumpets, and so they were mm. trying to 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 marry you know this part of creation was scorched and this part wasn't. And but when you begin to really break down the ways in which they're, if you really press people to say, well, show me these correspondences with the biblical text, there's always, all, there's huge gaps in certain generalizations and leaps of logic that people have to go through to, to fit um, basically a contemporary reality to some piece of symbolism in the revelation. Mm. So it's kind of comparing apples and oranges and you get uh, some outlandish views, but the fact of the matter is, people who read Revelation like this, if you're good at it, you can make millions of dollars. Mm. And the Left Behind series is a case in point. Tim Lay and Larry Jenkins have, you know, uh, their pockets full of money because they've offered us a sensationalized reading of Revelation, which plays off of uh, people's uh, understanding of Revelation that really isn't in keeping with maybe how we should be looking at the text that is more life-giving, that is more actually focused on what is Revelation calling me to in this day and in this age? Hmm. Yeah, I have like an off question that I didn't yep. send you beforehand, but what do you think is people's draw to those sorts of interpretations, like these extreme, like yep. 2012, like yep. movies were released about it, and, yep. and you know, it, it's, or 2K, where yep. we know it's going to end 2000. Yep. Why, why do you think people are so enamored by that? I think uh, part of it is in the Western world, we've, where people who would like to be entertained and uh, the development of the entertainment industry you know even over the last 50 years is exploding um, so much so now that you know some of the students I teach uh, have even problems focusing on class until I stand on my head and start juggling and then talk <laughs> about Jesus at the same time it gets their attention back yeah. so we, we have this like increasing insatiable desire to be entertained and to have new information before us mm. and not satisfied necessarily with old stuff Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that kind of plays into the hands of people who interpret Revelation sensationally. It's a, basically another form of entertainment. 
And uh, sorry, folks, I don't, I don't think that's the, the purpose of Scripture. Um, it, it's to develop faithful, spirit-filled, attuned and attentive disciples of Jesus Christ who are not oblivious to their, the culture in which they live and, in fact, are trying to understand their culture better, both in terms of trying to redeem it, but at the same time seeing the, the, the negative effects that culture can have on our faithful witness. And, you know, Revelation helps us in those things. But if we, if we sensationalize it, well, we're just, we're, we're just being entertained instead of instructed and formed and molded entertainment is is not a, a, a I don't see entertainment as one of the classical spiritual disciplines like <laughs> fasting and prayer and yeah. self-denial and almsgiving for instance yeah. entertainment just hasn't made the list yet uh, it's interesting how like we have and you see that even in the way we've done church and I think we're finally starting to come away from that place where we where we see this, like, let's get as many people, let's do whatever we need to do to get as many people in as we can. So when when you're talking to, to students now about the book of Revelation, yeah. why do you get up and do what you do? Yeah, because Revelation has something to say to the church today. And uh, I think, you know, the, the kind of key passage for me, and it's one that, the meaning of this passage can even be obscured depending on the English translation you use uh, or version, sorry, but it's at the very opening in, in chapter 1 where uh, John basically says this in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for mm. the time is near. And the NIV translates who keep uh, as take to heart and it's my opinion that that is kind of uh, an un unintentional but insidious way that, that a dispensational reading of the Revelation make, has made its way in because the whole thing is about the future. So you just kind of take to heart the stuff, the warnings, but really there's not a lot that's really hitting me where I am at today. But no, that's not what the text is. This is a prophecy that demands something of us in the present. Hmm. And, and prophecy in the Old Testament, you know, the, the nature of biblical prophecy is God's word for the present that has implications for the future, depending upon how Israel responds to God's word in the present. Blessings for obedience, judgment for disobedience. I mean, that's kind of the long and short of it. And, in those, and, and throughout the pages of Revelation, if you take seriously the symbolism of the, of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, in many ways, it's describing an empire that Yahweh is judging because of its because of its demonic character and the way in which it's partnered with the demonic realm of darkness to advance its aims. And of course, the people of God are the children of light who are faithful, concerned for the poor and the oppressed and the unjust. The kingdom that is oppressive doesn't have any room for the voices that uh, speak against those who are oppressed. And, and it's more than just, you know, how is the world going to end? It's like, what is my role in the world now, given that we live in, in a world where empires exist, which use war as a means of advancing the goals of those empires, have economic policies that sometimes or oftentimes overlook um, those individuals who are not in positions of power but offer goods and services or natural resources that empire needs to operate but are not paid um, a, a fair wage in response. So, um, yeah, and this is not to say capitalism is inherently evil or wrong. I'm not <laughs> saying that at all. Um, in fact, I have a brother who is a, is a business executive and we talk about these things all the time. Nice. And there's lots of good things that, that business do to help, but there's also kind of uh, the spirit of the age, as it were, in terms of thinking about empire and, and money and business. Um, we, it's not hard to find examples of oppression of mm. those in positions of weakness who serve empire or commerce. And, uh, and the church needs to be a voice there. And so that's just one way that the book of Revelation uh, helps us see the relevance of the gospel and the relevance of the character of God, that God cares about things that are not right in this world. And that's mm -hmm. what God's righteousness is. It's God acting mm -hmm. rightly to put 
things that are wrong with the world to right. But God can only do that through his people. He's, you know, those of us who are co-heirs with Christ, reigning with Christ in the present, are to be about the things that Jesus was about, which was dealing with and welcoming in the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. And what we have in Revelation is the way in which God judges uh, that uh, those oppressive structures and, and linking a lot of what I believe uh, the imagery linking it to the fall of Rome and, and, and so in Revelation is revealing the demonic character of empire mm. which is a key part of apocalyptic it's revealing the inherent corrupt character of, of empires Daniel 7 is a case in point yeah yeah um, on that on that judging note of, of this these empires. Yeah. Um, you talked about the bulls. Yeah. Uh, the f I think it's the four bulls of judgment. Uh, there's seven bulls. Seven bulls. Thank yeah. you. Of God's wrath. What What do those like? How do you How do you explain that to somebody who's opening cracks open the Bible for the first time and they hit that chapter? <laughs> like, what do I do with this? It It's uh, It's heavy reading. No question about it. Especially in uh, our culture, um, evangelical culture, where we like to talk about salvation and God's heart is open and warm and welcoming of all and, and all the rest of it. But the problem is that that is true and I'm a firm believer in the goodness of God. <laughs> but there is an adverse side of, of his character or maybe not an adverse side but a crucial part of his character and that's important to keep in mind that it's the same place from it's the same sort of place from which his goodness comes from. And that, again, as I said, is his righteousness. Mm. And and God, the bulls, yes, they are the unmitigated, all hell breaks loose, wrath of God on uh, empire. And it's not an unjust judgment because God's not an unjust God. It's a, it's a judgment, basically, that um, puts what is wrong with the world to right by dealing with the perpetrators of injustice. And, and, and to say, you know, would God be really a good God if he let suffering and injustice go unabated for eternity? Absolutely not. There's, mm. even within us, there's well kind of formed individuals, people who don't know God, um, understand Injustice, and, mm -hmm. and that's what it means to be made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Built within us is a sense of, of justice, of right and wrong when it comes to the treatment of individuals. And, and God is not happy that empire has basically gotten drunk off of the shed blood of the martyrs. There's a lot of graphic language there mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, Rome is portrayed as a harlot or more crassly as a whore and um, who will basically make alliances with anyone to advance her saving purposes uh, in terms of bringing her version of salvation to the world and peace to the world. Mm. And uh, God's people and the, those in, in oppressed positions who stand up to against, against that pay a huge price. But, and and so, so God has to deal with that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that lands in that there's even stuff within my own heart, my own soul that, that God needs to deal with justly because I fall so short. And that just like almost right. in my mind, I think the judgment of God just shines a greater light on the grace of God. Yeah. And how how he, like, it just leads all the way through back to the Gospels and, and Jesus' incarnation that he would put aside his godness and, you know, yeah. come and, and live. That's just, that's so good. Yeah. Um, the the I have a few like of the uh, symbolic questions of some of the imagery yeah. for you that like so the mark of the beast six 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 everybody yeah. like you know you yeah. see so oh my goodness six 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 like yeah. yeah what is what is that yeah so a lot of uh, what I was taught growing up was you know at some point government is going to implant in our forehead some microchip you know um, I kind of laugh at that a little bit now you know, because we've got debit cards in a sense where you just scan these things and they're, and I'm sure we could Google about uh, debit card and uh, kind of, you know, this touchless way of paying for things. Uh, you know, but what would it mean to have something in our forehead and we have to, you know, swoop down by the card reader to get it to click? So anyway, I don't <laughs> know if that's gonna happen anytime soon because there'd be a lot of bumping heads. Um, so, so it, it's rooted in an, in an ac inaccurate reading, I think. Um, first off, 
the way in which ancient people counted uh, is different from how we count. Mm. And um, this idea of gematria, so each ancient letter, say in Hebrew or Greek, has a numerical counterpart. So in Greek, alpha is one, uh, beta is two, and so on, gamma three. And it goes like that. Um, sorry, gamma delta. So anyway, it goes like that. And if you look at 666 then, it's not, it's not the three digits 666, it's actually 666. Mm. So if you look at the numerical value of Kaisar Nero in Hebrew and add up the numerical value of those Hebrew letters, you'll get 666. It could be an Aramaic, but I'm quite sure it's in Hebrew. Anyway, one of those two Semitic languages adds up to 666, and so it's a coded way uh, or encode rather way of referring to the empire and mm. um, without using the name Nero but mm. I think that's important there's an intentionality that, uh, about the namelessness see the biblical authors don't want to name things we want to name things because right. we're kind of scientifically oriented we, we need to categorize formulate blah 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 all this stuff thank you scientific revolution from the 18th century but the biblical authors don't have that framework they, for instance, uh, look at the Pharaoh in, uh, you know, the Pharaoh that Moses went up against. He's unnamed in that text, and he's unnamed for a reason. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, although he's named in Matthew, he's not. The high priest, he's just called the high priest, not Caiaphas. Hmm. And here we've got um, this beast from the sea who just comes up and wreaks havoc. He's not named as the emperor. Or you know, and when he is, it's in a coded way, and I, I think there's intentionality there because successive generations of Jews and of Christians who receive these texts, we need to ask who the pharaohs are, who the high priests are, who the uh, emperors are of our day who are at cross purposes with the saving purposes of God, and then what does that mean then when the 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 laws, the legislations they enact. Are at cross purposes with the kingdom of God and the gospel of God, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's a way that namelessness gives a transferability to some of these characters throughout Scripture. That's really like because if they were to name, all of a sudden that application for us kind of goes away. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. And um, I, the hundred forty-four thousand. Now the yeah. JWs, they're all about yeah. that. One hundred forty-four thousand yeah. will be saved, but then they had a problem and. 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses died, and now what do we do with the rest of them? Yeah. What do we as evangelical Christians, like, yeah. what do we do yeah. with that passage? So, again, it's, it's, it's the symbolism of it. So you've got a multiple of a 1,000 in there, uh, so that's one part of it, and then you've got multiples of 12 to make your 144. Mm. And it's likely just a reference if you look at it, where it shows up in Revelation 14, 1 to 5, it, it refers to uh, an innumerable amount of people uh, worshiping mm. God who did not uh, back down from the prospect of death but were faithful um, servants of God and paid the ultimate form of sacrifice, and that is giving their lives for the gospel. And and the, the 12... The imagery of 12 is likely the, the 12 um, tribes, and then we have the 12 apostles, and then the multitude of a thousand thrown in there, or the factor of a thousand, represents a unified people of God who are centered around Jesus Christ. And there's a heck of a lot of them mm. who, who were faithfully devoted to him. And it's strategically placed. Revelation 13 is about the beast from the sea, which is probably the emperor, and then the beast from the land, which is the cult of the emperor, which is all about, hey, worship the emperor. You ain't going to eat unless you get his mark, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So it's a lot of doom and gloom, literally, which, interesting, goes back to Revelation 12, where the dragon that is thrown down, Satan now manifests as the beast from the sea and you know his minions basically is the cult of the empire mm. so it's a very distressing passage because when the dragon is thrown down in, in Revelation 12 he's going after God's people mm. but it's a break in that intense narrative Revelation 14 that's not the end of the story eschatologically there is more and it's a good more it's a mm. restored more where we're in the presence of God forever but that's challenging in our culture because, well, like we said earlier, we like to be entertained. We like to be made comfortable. We don't like to be challenged. 
And it kind of leads me to believe the more we become enmeshed in this culture, Western culture, and the things that it has to offer, is maybe the return of Christ, is, is dying for our faith, not more an act of martyrdom, but just an interruption. Mm. And it's kind of like, what? Heaven? No. So, so that's the thing. In, in the ancient world, these people, death, like life was literally like a, a gift. There's no going and getting a, a surgery, flying on an aircraft to a different city to get a specialized surgery that there's a specialist there that deals with this. No, chances are you got sick, mm. you died. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so there's, they just have a lot less to worry about when it comes to how are we embedding ourselves in culture again that's at cross purposes to the gospel. Mm. Well, that's so good. Um, the, um, the idea, the, the importance of the, the tree of life. Now, in Genesis there's one, yeah. and then in Revelation the river is lined with them. Yeah. And yeah. so why is that important? Yeah. I think it shows, so I remember being at a conference one, uh, one time, uh, the Society of Biblical Literature, and John Dominic Poisson, who has a, a different way of reading the New Testament than I do, he made the point that um, what a horrible ending for the Bible. Like, <laughs> this thing that's all about life, it's all about uh, wrapping things up, and the goodness of God that's revealed in other places of the scriptures, and here we go, it ends in the worst form of bloodshed that you can imagine. This, mm -hmm. is, this is some bloodthirsty Jew writing this stuff, and it should be rejected, taken out of the canon. Now, he didn't say that, but clearly, I think if he was canonizing, that is, putting together the, the books of the Bible, he probably would have turfed it. Mm -hmm. um, but, first of all, um, this is imagery that we're dealing with that has a theological significance, yeah. and so to read it literally as all the kind of the bloodlust um, is is inaccurate. Mm. It's it's God dealing with injustice, and it shows you how serious God is about injustice. Mm. But the revelation doesn't end with the bloodshed. It it, it ends with the, the new heavens and the new earth, and it shows you the heart of God is about life. Mm. The heart of God is living in His presence. And, you know, the river of life coming from the throne of God, from the presence of God, modeled in Ezekiel, shows you that, that in God we have everything that we need. And, and that was realized completely in its fullness uh, when, when, when Christ returns. And so truly is, you know, it's all, it's all about life. That's why there's no more sickness, no more death. Um, you know, there's no need for a sun or a moon because the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. So, so this is about purity. This is about holiness. Mm. And, and not just having Genesis 1 restored where there's, uh, sorry, Genesis 2 where there's one tree of life. There are many trees of life, as it were, mm. from which we will be able to eat for eternity. And they're kind of ever-bearing trees as well. They just keep giving their fruit. Yeah. So one more quick question, and then I will just try and summarize as best we can. Yeah. The on the topic of life, there's the book of life, right? And people's right. names are yes. written in it. Now, a question that I've heard is: is it uh, is it possible for the people whose names are in the book of life to be removed? Yeah. So, well, if you read the Qumran scrolls, so that's a Jewish uh, sect. Uh, a bit before the time of Jesus, they talk about a book of life and names be remo removing from that book. Um, in other parts of the Bible, you know, those who have good deeds, their names are written there. So it's kind of a thing we see in the Bible. I think it's important to remember where this comes from. And, and uh, for instance, in Greco-Roman cities, there's a role kept, if you, if you, if you will, of the citizens. Sort of like Cal in the city where we live in Calgary, they'll come around and do a census. So they don't take our names, they want to know how many people's living in the house, and so that's recorded. And so this business of recording the citizens of a kingdom has been around for years. And, and that's, that's kind of like the, the foundation of it. it. It's those who are a part of the kingdom of God. And, um, and so some Jews believe that, you know, you kind of fall off the cart, as it were, your name uh, could be removed. Now, looking at it, uh, from the perspective of, well, for us, so to answer your question, well, it depends really on your theological tradition. Mm. Um, so more Reformed Calvinist traditions, you know, have this thing called eternal security where, the, where your name would never be removed from the Book of Life. And, um, you know, I've kind of 
given up debating. I'm not from that tradition. I'm a Wesleyan, and so we, we believe, I suppose, if you want to put it this way, your name could be removed. Um, but it, it's, it's really hard to mm. get your name taken out of that book. Because the fact of the matter is, God is gracious. He desires relationship with his people, and, and he gets us. He's tempted in every way that we are tempted. And uh, the only way that removal could happen is, God, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Uh, I love empire. I love myself too much, and, and I'm done. Hmm. And that's very rare that people kind of take that posture towards God, but God respects our will. We're made in his image and part of our dignity is having the ability to make meaningful choices even if it's over eternal things. And so that would be my view. But it's not like, oh I sinned, bang, you know, out of the book of life. Oh, I <laughs> repented. He wrote me back in. Yeah. And he's gonna, a racer's gonna like go through a bazillion of those things. <laughs> so that's not how it works. Yeah, yeah. Rob, like, thank you, like, so much. So if I could try and, as best I can, just kind of recap what I've heard you say is, yeah. is when we're looking at the book of Revelation, we have to look at context of who is John writing to and who would be reading this in specifically 95 AD, so you referenced the Laodicea yeah. um, text. Um, but then also the imagery goes beyond the context of the age that he wrote it in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he does that by not naming specific people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this idea of the empire is this idea of sin, injustice, oppression yep. that you and I see every day. You, gotta, you know, I, I scroll on the news this morning and I, I, first three are always, has to do with something yeah. with those things. And, and, and so then we, when we get to this point of like God's judgment, we see, we, in our Western society, see a judging, harsh, unforgiving right. God, but right. really what he's revealing to John is this idea that this is his attitude towards those things, exactly. towards sin, towards oppression, towards yep. justice, and the call for us, you and I and everybody who's listening as, as Jesus followers, is to, to live as these you know, these 144,000, that who the 144,000 represents mm -hmm. is people who are devoted and love Jesus right. and, and, and live countercultural to the empire. Yeah. Yeah. And fall under the kingdom of God. Yeah, exactly. Really, it's to live the way Jesus lived, to take mm -hmm. up our cross, to deny ourselves, all for the sake of him and, and his kingdom. Yeah. It's very much in keeping with the words that Jesus himself has taught. Yeah, it's amazing. So, one last question. How has the book of Revelation changed your life? Um, I think in my understanding of worship. Um, hmm. I think in the book of Revelation, you have, uh, you know, the, in Orthodox, Greek Orthodox traditions, they talk about a thin veil, a liminal space that exists between heavenly realities and earthly realities. And, and that's very much a thing in, in the theology of the New Testament, that that the worship that we do is reflected, is connected in some way uh, to the worship of God in heaven. And, and you can't read Revelation just as uh, an exercise in intellection or um, rationalism. It needs to be read from a posture of worship. And I say that because of this. For Jews, you become what you worship. And, and the worship of Jesus Christ, who is completely sovereign, completely just, completely faithful, completely self-giving, those aspects that are meant for us to be self-giving, to be loving and compassionate, we begin to emulate that. But if you want to worship empire, which is all about self-preservation, which is all about the advancement of one own agenda, then we will follow in the ways of empire and live that way in this world. And so it's, it's deeply transformative. You become what you worship, and, and Revelation shows us what happens when you worship that which is not Jesus Christ, when mm. you worship uh, empire and its idols, which give peace and security. But they're parodies of Jesus Christ. The peace and security they give is temporal. It, 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 it doesn't... Uh, last for eternity by many, any means. It will fall apart, and partly because God has something to say about it and is going to do something about it, versus the, the, the salvation and, and the, uh, the power and uh, the peace that, that comes through worshiping Jesus Christ lasts for an eternity, and we can realize that now in our own lived lives and be models and examples of, of kingdom life now in the present to those who may not know Christ. Mm, amazing. 
Amazing. Well, hey, Rob, thanks for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for your wisdom. Oh, we, we appreciate it. I appreciate it. I've learned something today, too. And, yeah. and so I, I thanks so much. And uh, is there any, any uh, what's going on in your life? What can, what would, if, for those who are thinking about going into um, the same sort of studies that you are, yeah. um, biblical yeah. study, and yeah. what would you say to somebody who's thinking about that? Yeah, I think um, you will find if, if you study the Bible, and I'm happy to chat with anyone that wants to shoot me a note or an email um, as well, but if you're thinking about going into biblical studies uh, or training for ministry in some way, you'll find that an academic study of these things actually uh, makes them more relevant to real life because we're seeing what, for instance, the Bible meant to its original audience, the great call that it placed on their lives and then what is the great call that it places on our lives. So mm. it's, so some people think studying the Bible intellectually erodes faith, and sure it can, depending on the way in which you approach the text. I like to think of it, uh, one of my professors from Regent College, Bruce Waltke, talked about standing over the text or standing under the text. And, and I believe standing under the text in a posture of openness to receive God's truth versus standing over it to twist it and manipulate it into what we think it should be saying, well, it's going to yield two different results at mm. the end of the day. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, ask you some questions, how yeah. could they do that? Yeah, rsnow at ambrose.edu. So my name's Rob Snow, as you know, but rsnow at ambrose.edu. Happy to chat with, uh, with anyone who'd like to connect. Perfect. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for your time. Happy to have you on the podcast. You're the first person, so this has been wow. super fun. <laughs> thanks for everything. Appreciate it. You bet.